Hello, and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm Ann Gordon, here with my friend and Chavruta, Yerdena Azben. Our daf of the day, Masachet Ravin, daf Tzarichet, page 98. So our daf has three Mishnayot, which is a little bit of an exaggeration, because one of the Mishnayot is really on the previous daf, at the very end of it. We're going to include it, because the whole Gemara of the top of 98, of Tzarichet, is about that Mishnah. So um, it's really a Mishnah-heavy daf, which means that, right, by definition, the moment you have a lot of Mishnayot separated on the daf, it means that you have relatively little Gemara. So here's the first one. So you're, somebody's reading a Sefer, meaning a, a holy book, and it's a scroll, right? Now, the fact is, once upon a time, all books basically were scrolls, as opposed to the physical books that we call them today, Forget about online. I just mean the physical books, right? Uh, technically, that's called a codex, or co- the codices are physical books as compared to scrolls. So somebody's reading a scroll, and they're leaning it on some kind of elevated thing, right? Base, bima, something, right? And it's angled. So, of course, what happens is, has safer it's going to roll away. Golalo etzlo. So because he's still holding to, the person who's reading is holding on to a portion of it, right, well, like one side, then even as it unfurls, you can roll it back to him. He can roll it back to himself because he's been holding on to it the whole time. And the fact that it's slipping away from him, as long as it's not really totally slipping away from him, is not a problem in this context, right? Next, still in our Mishnah, Somebody is up on his roof, and he's reading, right? And he's got his book up there, again, a scroll, and it unrolls. And now the question is, what happens if it's going to, he's up on the roof. Is it going to fall down to the ground? Is it going to fall to the gutter? How far is it going to go? So the Mishnah says, as long as it doesn't reach within 10 tfachim of the, of the public domain, um, then he could roll it back to himself. That as soon as, but if it does reach that 10 tfachim, then as soon as it does, basically what happens, it's out of his hands. He can't pull him back to himself. It's kind of, it's now in the public domain or close enough that it's considered the public domain. So all that he's allowed to do, and this is a very interesting halacha, I think, it's he's able to turn the book over so that the writing, that the text itself is not face down. The implication being, of course, that if it's face down, you know, on the ground or even on the rooftop, but that's still the ground for for those who are up on the rooftops, right? Then that text is being, you know, it's an insult to the text. It's a degradation or something. The idea that it's, that that the holy text would touch the ground. So I think it's interesting, of course, that the concern is not the scroll, that the scroll itself is on the ground, Right nowadays, if you drop a holy book, you bend down, you pick it up, you kiss the book, right? You to treat to to apologize, to treat it with honor. In this case, the concern is not the back of the scroll, but the text. And then, lastly, the last bit of this mission of Rabbi Huda Omer: Afilu ein misulak min haaret elikim lo machat golaloetzlo. So Rabbi Huda says as follows: Even if the scroll has fallen, right, and is only one needle breadth from the ground, meaning it's very, very close to the ground, you can roll it back to yourself. Meaning, as opposed to this 10 tzvachim measurement, it seems to me, you could still pull it back. Rabbi Shimon Omer, I feel 
גוללו אצלו, שאין לך דבר משום שבות עומד בפני כתבי הקודש. And then Rabbi Shimon disagrees, he's got an even more lenient ruling, where he says, even if it reaches to the ground, right? So then the guy can still pull the book back to himself, he could, you know, roll it back up, or pull the, roll, the unrolling back to himself, because he says, you're only worried here about a shvut, you've got a rabbinic decree in terms of, of whether or not you could carry this, right? The, the idea that it has made its way into the public domain or into a Carmelite, really. We're really talking about a Carmelite. You say, you know, when you're talking about a rabbinic decree that's designed to make Shabbos more special, right? To have less carrying, as it were, within the context of Shabbat, then you don't worry about that particular kind of decree when you're worried about the, the honor and respect that is due to Kitve HaKodesh, to sacred writings. Rather, you should make sure that it doesn't end up on the ground. And he, so that Rabbi Shimon's position is the same way that we do today, right? He's making sure that the entirety of the book, including the back of it, is not touching the ground as a sign of respect. Um, your data, before I hit the Gemara, do you want to comment on this at all? No, I mean, I, I, if I remember correctly, we did actually do this Mishnah. It was brought on Masachat Shabbat. Um, you know, when we did all those chapters on Hotza, there was a discussion of this, uh, you know, in Shabbat. But it's always interesting to see. And again, this is an Adaf Yomi activity, you know, to go back and see what was the discussion in Shabbat versus what's the discussion here. Also, I think here we've got such a different, at least I'm coming at it with such a different head, right? Because he's talking about, yes, we're talking about public domain and private domain. Those also show up in Shabbat. But now we're also talking about the roof, and we've been talking about rooftops, and we talk about this incline, and we've been talking, right, meaning it, the, the architectural physicality or whatever of where he's standing um, has, a, has much greater resonance now, even if it's the exact same words, which I'm not sure that it is, right? But even if it were the exact same words in Masach Shabbat, it would, it would be different because we didn't have all of this Erev in context for it, I think. Yeah, I, right. I would agree with that. Right. Reading it now. And that's why I think looking at the two texts would be very interesting. Yes. Now, what happens here in the Gemara, of course, is to try to figure out all of the Erevin aspects of exactly this text. Right. So this is exactly the point where it says, but you don't really mean Rashid Rabim, you really mean a Carmelite. And are you talking about, you know, is it the kind of place where you normally would put down this kind of Kite Kodesh or would you not? Is it the kind of place where people would be, is walking, so here's one bit that's, I think, interesting, I'll just read it inside. Hamani ben Azahi, they're trying to figure out whose opinion is represented in the Mishnah, in the Mishnah, the Amar, so ben Azai said, Mahalech ko'omed dami. Ben Azai said that one who is walking as, it is, as if he is standing. Badil mazarik l'humizrak, the Amar Rabbi Yochanan, mod ben Azai bezurik. So this is a question that is asked, right, if walking is like standing, then somebody who passes through a Carmelite, right, is it as if, and they're standing there, the object that goes fr- from the, let's say this right, that goes from the public domain to the private domain, or as the person's walking through the Carmelite, so are we worried about throwing the, the scrolls inside, Zarik, that means to throw, right? Or rather, can he carry them by hand? Because if you're walking is the same as standing still, then maybe that's sufficient. And Rabbi Yochanan says, well, indeed, you know, throwing something from a public domain to a private domain perhaps is not quite the same thing as walking that is the same as standing still. 
Now, on the one hand, it feels to me like this is very much an aside. And on the other hand, it's really fleshing out the parameters of the case when you've got a public domain and a private domain and perhaps a Carmelite in between. Um, yeah, I mean, yeah, again, I think the, the overall theme to me about these three Mishnahs, and I'm going to do the other two, is it's just interesting to see also, again, it's a Mishnah that seems to speak very broadly, and then the Gemara comes to make it a very specific case. Yes, that's fair, right? Because again, it's going to be talking about exactly, you know, how far from the ground is this? And right, and, and it has to be on rolling. an incline versus it, you know, exactly. right, right? Like it goes through all these permutations. And I think, you know, the more, like, if the goal of this parak of Mishnah is to sort of see what are the, like, literal, you know, but I guess a pun intended, what are the boundaries of, you know, the rabbis in terms of some of these laws of, of shvut and things like that, you know? So, you know, so that's what they're trying to explore here. But then I think what you see is there's even more of a contraction or, uh, you know, of um, the Gemara, the Amurayim of what they want to say is permissible. Okay. Okay. Yordana, you are up. We are ready for the next mission. Okay. So again, keeping in mind sort of this thesis that I'm putting forward, which is we're going to have a very general Tanaitic Mishnah. And then we're going to watch the Gemara come where the Amorayim come to sort of like really contract it into or limit into a much smaller case. So here we have a very short Mishnah, which reads, right? So if you've a ledge in front of a window, um, and presumably, again, this ledge would have to be 10 Tzfachim high and 4 Tzfachim wide, because in other words, the idea is that the ledge itself, it's its own Rishus HaYachid, right? Somebody who's standing in a Rishus HaRabim, again, this is all inferred, this isn't explicitly said, but you could place objects upon it or remove objects from it, right? So when you read that Mishnah, it seems very broad, right? The picture you have in your head is, I'm standing in a Rishus HaRabim, there's this ledge, which technically is actually a Rishus HaYachid, and once it's a Rishus HaYachid, it's not technical, right? It's just, it's a Rishus HaYachid, but we're going to allow, while you're standing in the Rishus HaRabim, it's normal for people to want to put things there. And we've seen this theme before, right? In, in Shabbat or maybe in a room, remember there was that case of like putting things in a wall sometimes, right? If you could do that on Shabbat, that that would be okay. It wouldn't be considered, um, you know, uh, tearing or placing something. Um, so you could see how this could happen. And then the Gemara comes, right? And basically the conclusion Right. So first it's going to go through this thing. Where is it? Go, you know, where is it protruding to the ledge? Is it the Rishus HaYachid, the Rishus HaRabim? It says, obviously, it has to be Rishus HaRabim. And then Abayah comes with this, like, what I think is like a crazy limitation. Right. So Abayah says, no, obviously it has to be that it's protruding to the, uh, the Rishus HaRabim. But what it's really teaching is you can only put their fragile, like Kaylee Manish Barin, fragile utensils. There is nothing in the language of the Mishnah that has any qualification of this, right? And then they're basically going to spend the rest of the Gemara, right, trying to talk about, you know, what types of Kaylee this is, right? So they quote a Brisa, right, that follows, that says it's, you know, Ka'arod v'kasod kitoniot utzlochiot, right, which are basically like you Kaylee made of glass or, or uh, sorry, you know, bowls, cups, small you know, small cups, right, which I guess would be saucers, like things that would be made of clay or glass, you know, like these small types of things that we have, you know, you you, you know exactly what type of kalim those are. Um, and then they go even into a further 
delineation, which is that there maybe was an upper ledge and a lower ledge. And again, it's amazing to see sort of what they're doing with this Mishnah, which is a super short Mishnah, has no qualifications. And yet, you know, at the end, they get to that. No, it's a case of only Kaleem Nishbarim, only fragile ones. And then Abaya coming and saying, no, and we're also talking about a case where there's an upper ledge and a lower ledge, right? And the lower ledge is at least, you know, this fourth, this fourth fucking wide. It's at least four handbreadths wide. The upper ledge is not. So therefore, it's really like a windowsill, right? And therefore, you can only use the upper part that's actually opposite the window is what it's going to say, because it's an extension of the actual window. So again, what we really see the Gemara do, and I could have read the whole Gemara, but I think anyone who's following along and read it will understand what I'm saying, you know, that there's an extreme contraction, an extreme limitation of what this means. But what I find interesting is that in this case, because the Mishnah itself is so short, right, it ends up feeling like an expansion because the Mishnah, like, which I guess is technically what's happening in every other case also because because that's the structure of it. But I mean, what I mean is that in the other cases, the Mishnah, in, let's say in the one that I've just read, right? So the Gemara, like, narrows the case. In this case, in your Mishnah here, because the Mishnah itself is terse, the narrowing of it happens by expanding on the text. Uh, maybe this is a different, what's the word? What's the expression? A difference without a, a distinction without a difference? Yes. But there's some, I'm not sure. I'm not sure, or... or in any case, it seems that the Gemara here is doing something different because the Mishnah is so short. Right, and it may so be that terse. it was puzzling them, but it also, I think, again, if the chapters, if this parak's really dealing with the limitations of some of these rabbinic enactments around Hotza, you know, the Amorai may have wanted to be more strict than what the Tanaim's actual intention was. Or at least they had a Misora right. that was more. Because again, remember, to defend the Amoraim, obviously, that these Mishnahs were meant to be memorized. So there's sort of shorthand for something. You know, and so right, right. you were just supposed to memorize. It. And I think that's always the challenge of an oral tradition. They're not meant to have all of the mission is not meant to have all the details. And then we'll get to the last mission here, which continues on to the next page in terms of the Gemara discussion. Right. Which reads, mm-hmm. So this is a very interesting case. You're standing in one Rishus, right? The Rishus HaYachid, but you move around an object in the Rashud HaRabbit, right? Like you're sort of on the border, you're moving an object around, not carrying it, just moving it. So it could be hand-to-hand, something like that. Rashud HaRabbit, right, the inverse. As long as you don't move that object more than Arba Amot, you're allowed to move it around. Lo yamur adam b'Rashud HaYachid v'yashtim b'Rashud HaRabbit, b'Rashud HaRabbit v'yashtim b'Rashud HaYachid, v'chein lo yarot. And then it has a very interesting halacha, which is that somebody should not urinate from a private domain into a public domain or a public domain into a private domain. And also you shouldn't spit, right? Because that would actually be, in other words, once those types of, um, let's say, liquids leave your body, they're not part of you anymore, right? It's something that you're obviously trying to get rid of, right? So I think here what it's saying is then that actually is hotza. You are trying to deposit it elsewhere. And so interesting that Rabbi Huda comes with normally Rabbi Huda, particularly when we learned with a Reuben, had a lot of kulas, right? Here, he's very machmir. And he says, even if the spit is just in your mouth, right? Like you are carrying it around in your mouth and you know your intention is, 
you should basically stop where you are and you shouldn't walk anymore, right? Because you, you, it's, it's caring. You've already made that separation, right? That it's not really, it's not part of you anymore. It's something that you want to get rid of. Um, and so most of the discussion about this mission is going to take place, um, you know, for a little bit on the next staff. Um, and so we'll see a little bit more of it tomorrow. But the Gemara is basically, you know, again, the Gemara is sort of going to try. First, the Gemara is going to deal with who actually wrote this Mishnah. Was it Rabbi Mayer, not Rabbi Mayer? Um, or was what part was Rabbi Mayer? What part of it uh, was the, uh, what part of it was the um, Chachamim? But what they're really trying to figure out here is, is, you know, the idea of basically, um, and, and we'll talk more about this tomorrow, particularly the piece of Lo Yamur Adam B'Rashus HaRabim, um, and, and the piece of not urinating or spitting, right? But, you know, that a person basically just can't, you can't carry, right? Like the idea is more that you're moving something around, but it's not a complete act of hotza because if it was really hotza, you would have to be higher for it. I would also just note that this kind of, this Mishnah is the kind of thing that has Ein Ladavar Sof, like there's, Reductio ad absurdum, you could take it to the nth degree kind of ramifications, right? Like, I feel like when I was in high school and we were learning Shabbos and people would say, well, you can't breathe because that's separating, you know, oxygen from carbon. And then they say, no, but it's okay because you're taking the ochel from the basola. You're taking what you want from what you don't want. But you could end up with like a conversation that goes too far, right? Or my friend who's a dentist who has... I guess he's a dentist, right? And he has Hasidim who come to him and he, they want him to cashier their fillings, which is not required, right? So I feel like here when we talk about what are you carrying in your bodily fluids as you walk down the street, some of this is a really important discussion and some of it has the capacity to, to right. get that halachic mind going too yeah, far. Yeah, I think that's a great insight into it, right? This is one of these missions you read, you're like, really? That's really an issue? Come on. Well, I'll just note, you know, I mean, we've got miles and miles of Masechtot until this, but like, you know, the menstrual woman is not a concern, right? for example. Exactly. Right, which you could see, right. So that that's right. And maybe it has to do with, you know, and again, not to be too crass, but sort of urine or, and, and I would presume a little bit that they were talking about the male experience of urinating here, not necessarily <laughs> the female one, um, that urine or spitting, you know, the, the, what's getting rid of the body has to sort of can go a, a distance. Does that make sense? I think we'll wrap it up here. It I'll does. The rest everybody I think so. <laughs> that might've been a little too graphic. We'll wait till we get to that. No, my, right. <laughs> but right. My point is just that, that on the one hand, the mission is paying attention the same way that it always does, right? The way Halacha always does to the full range of possibilities here, right? And then all I'm saying is that what, what the Mishnah doesn't do and what we need to do is say, okay, within reason, right? And the Gemara may do that as well, or the, the Gemara in the context of the entirety of Shas really fundamentally does do that. But it's not always in evidence just on the one case when you say, you know, who's spitting what, where, what, how? Well, that must mean all these other things that it doesn't actually mean. Exactly. Well, we'll wrap it up with that. That's our DAP discussion for the day. Rank us, review us on all major podcasts. Thank you to Rabbi Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hadron website. If you have not registered yet for our CM and we have some great speakers and learners who are going to be sharing things with us, please do so over this weekend. And we'll be sending out the Zoom link soon, uh, next week for sure. 
Um, and until tomorrow, go and.